Jesus' name, amen. I do have announcements that I do need to make. Ladies' prayer Tuesday at 10. This Tuesday at 10. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Sunday, Tuesday, right? Jeff Ferris is going to be preaching for us November the 14th, which is awesome. If you remember Jeff, last time he was here, it's been a couple of years, a funny guy and very effective, powerfully used by God. Just a funny guy, though, man. I got some stories I could tell about Jeff. I'll hold off on those. But y you, will, you will not want to miss the 14th of November, and, and he is just so good at praying with people, especially new people that are not used to a church the way we do church. He's so good at that. And then don't forget the Denmark wedding shower, November the 14th. That's this Sunday or next Sunday, 530, here at the church. All right, having said that, let me read from chapter 9, verses 15 through 17. All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them because of the evil of their deeds. I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebellious. Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. Yes, were they to bear children, I would kill the darlings of their womb. Wow, that's harsh. My God will cast them away because they did not obey him, and they shall be wanderers among the nations. What in the world does this mean? All their wickedness is in Gilgal. We saw this in Hosea 4.15. God despised Gilgal. Because it was a center of idolatry in Israel. But what makes it so special is at one time Gilgal was a Bible school. It was a seminary. It was a school for the prophets in Gilgal. That's where Elijah taught and Elisha taught and maybe even Jonah. So this was a renowned Bible school. I mentioned it's like Harvard and Yale and Princeton. Those were seminaries at one time, far from it now, but that's exactly what is happening here. Gilgal was a Bible school, now it's a center for idolatry. And so there was false worship that took there. We saw this uh, took place there. We saw this in Hosea 4, Hosea 12. Uh, we'll see it. It's in Amos 4, Amos 5. And he says, I will drive them from my house. So in this sense, Exile was the perfect punishment for Israel. They had disgraced God's house and his land so he would evict them from his house. He would kick them out and from his land. Remember what Jesus said right before his crucifixion? Uh, he said in Matthew 23, 37, I think through 39 it is, Oh, Jerusalem! Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to her, how often I would have gathered you together as a, a, a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So your house is left to you desolate or empty. And you will, you know, he goes on from there, but notice it was, your house. In Matthew 21, 13, when Jesus cleansed the temple, he's, he's kicking over the money changers. He's going, you know, nuts. He, he, he had sat down, though. It wasn't irrational. He sat down and, and, and built 
manufactured a whip. Our loving Jesus sat down and strung together a whip. And then he goes through the temple and he's kicking over tables and shooing animals and he's whipping people and animals and just just he's going crazy in the temple and he and he says you have made my house a den of thieves my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations but you have made it a den of thieves but then in just two chapters he's calling what had been his house their house so what changed you who killed the prophets they rejected his word. They rejected him who was the prophet prophetically that was sent to the house of Israel. And because of their rebellion, he was moving on. And they tried to evict him from his house. And he chose to leave. And he chose to leave the house to them. You can have it. You want your house? You can have it. But it's empty. You know, and this was really Zerubbabel's temple. It's called Herod's temple. But this is the one that was built by Zerubbabel. This was a lesser temple. You know, the first temple was Solomon's temple. Remember, David wanted to build a house for the Lord. But he had blood on his hands, and he gathered the materials, and Solomon built the temple. And it was so grand and glorious, and the dedication was phenomenal. You can see that in the Chronicles. You, you can see the, the, the story, the presence of God filled the, the house so much that the priest couldn't even minister. It was just phenomenal. But there was a prophecy that said the glory of the latter house would be greater than the former house. Solomon's was the former house. And in the book of Ezra, the Bible says that there were old men. So Solomon's temple was destroyed. And then there was another temple built, Zerubbabel's temple. Are you with me? And that second temple, it, the, the prophecy said it would be greater than the former temple. But it was small, it was smaller, it was lesser, it was less ornate, less elaborate, less precious metals in that house. And, and the Bible says that the dedication of Zerubbabel's temple, the young men shouted and rejoiced, Woo, look what God has done. And the old men wept, the old men that had seen Solomon's temple. And the reason they were crying is because this latter house was nothing compared to the former house. But a prophecy said the the latter house would be greater. How was it greater? Well, Herod added on to it. It really became humongous, but it still wasn't greater than Solomon's. What made the latter house greater was that the Lord of the house, he came suddenly to his temple. He said, the zeal of the Lord has eaten me up, and he came to his temple. Jesus came to his house. He's like, you've made my house. That's what made it glorious. But then he said, but... You rejected me, so your house. You can have it. You can have all this stuff. And I said it. I, I'll say it again. If we just if we become a mega church and we have mega buildings and we have all the pomp and, and circumstance of a mega church, but we don't have the presence of God, it's our house and not his house. God forbid that that ever happen. And the way that won't happen is if we don't reject his word. They rejected his word. And he said, they shall bear no fruit. I would kill the, the beloved fruit of their womb, the darlings that would be born. That, that sounds so harsh. It's, it's difficult. One of the major reasons, and here's the point, Israel went after idols like Baal and Ashtoreth was because 
these were supposed to be gods of fertility and fruitfulness. And so they're wanting to bear children. And God snaps Israel to attention by reminding them, I'm the one who is the Lord of the harvest. I open the womb. I can close the womb. And he will turn their fruitfulness into barrenness. He's the same God who would say, I can turn your barrenness into fruitfulness. But if he can do that, he can do the other. That's the idea. My God will cast them away because they did not obey him. And this is exactly what the Lord promised under the terms of the old covenant. Deuteronomy 30, 14 through 18. Notice this. But the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Paul would later quote this to the church of Rome. That you may do it. The word is very near you in your mouth, in your heart, that you may do it. I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commandments, His statutes, His judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go up in to possess it. So this is exactly what he had said, and he's referring back to the small print. That's what he's doing in the book of Hosea. He's referring back to the small print. Now, we're under a new and better covenant. Thank you, Jesus, where he promises to remember our sins no more, Hebrews 8, 12, Hebrews 10, 16, and 17. And we're redeemed from the curse of the law, Galatians 3, 13. So you get blessings and curses, but we're redeemed from the curse of the law at the same time though may we not forget God is not mocked a man sows what he reaps and so here's the deal we have to turn from our wicked ways and we have to create cultivate a pattern of sowing to the spirit and not to the flesh because even in this new covenant we will reap from the flesh, if we sow to the flesh. But if we'll sow to the Spirit, if we'll walk in the Word, Jesus said the words I speak, their Spirit in their life, then we will reap from the Spirit. I want to reap from the Spirit. Now we're in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Israel empties his vine. He brings forth fruit for himself according to the multitude of his fruit. He has increased the altars. According to the bounty of his land, they have embellished his sacred pillars. Their heart is divided. Now they are held guilty. He will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. So let's look at this. He brings forth fruit for himself. It was God who blessed Israel with material abundance. Not Israel. But they chose to spend it all on themselves and on their own idolatrous causes. Their desires. And that's what it means when it says, he that is Israel has increased the altars. Israel enjoyed the blessing of God, but they used those blessings in ungodly ways. They built altars to false gods. Paul warns against a similar sin in Galatians 5.13. He says, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty, but don't use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. 
As Christians, we can take the liberty and blessing that God bestows on us, and we can use it to do bad things. You can be a tither. You can give. God can open the windows of heaven, pour out a blessing, and you can take all of that blessing, and you can go buy 17,000 lottery tickets. And you'll probably lose. It's rigged. You know that, right? You'll probably lose. And the thing is, uh, all that is just wasted. You can take all that blessing and, and, and you, can, you can do something so foolish with it. And, and here, here you have the, the principle. Don't take the liberty, the blessing, and use it in an ungodly way. He says their heart is divided and they are held guilty now. So Israel had received this blessing, and they were more, you know, they should have been more responsible with this, but they had this divided heart, and they used God's bountiful blessings in wicked ways. So God said, I'm going to break down your altars to these pagan gods, and I'm going to ruin your sacred pillars made into these idols, these poles and whatnot. I'm going to, I'm going to tear it all down. Your heart's divided. Now, Guzik points something out interesting here. The word divided is halach, halach, which has the ideas of divided, yes, Genesis 14, Genesis 49, but it also has the idea of smooth, smooth, Genesis 27, Psalm 55, and of flattering, Psalm 5, Psalm 36. So you could accurately translate the phrase, their heart is divided, like this, Ephraim has a smooth, flattering, and the idea is insincere heart. A smooth, flattering, insincere heart. And so, remember, this is the book of Hosea. Hosea married a woman. She was adulterous. Smooth, flattering, insincere. I love you, Hosea, but she had, you know, these flings going on, and so smooth, insincere, uh, flattering, so you have this divided heart, insincere, and, and you see it with the altars of idolatry, it's, it's spiritual adultery, and so he said, I'm going to break down their altars, Adam Clark says this, that old theologian, now God will do in judgment what they should have done in contrition, break down the altars, spoil the images. Verses 3 through 11. Are you with me? Isn't this exciting? We're moving quick. For now they say we have no king because we did not fear the Lord. And as for a king, what would he do for us? They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springs up like hemlock in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria fear because of the calf of Beth-Avon. For its people mourn for it, and its priests shriek for it, because its glory has departed from it. The idol also shall be carried to Assyria as a present for King Jerob. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. As for Samaria, her king is cut off like a twig on the water. Also, the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn and thistle shall grow on their altars. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. 
So we have no king. So under the judgment of the Lord, these foreign powers of Israel would take over, take their kings, kill their kings, and even their idols that they had put so much trust in would be taken to foreign lands as booty, as treasure. So their kings are gone, and all this that they put so much trust in is taken from them. The thorn and thistle grows on their altars. So after the desolation of exile, they will be taken off to Assyria. These pagan altars of Israel become overgrown with thorns and thistles. And this is because they rejected the Lord. When me and Valerie were in Israel, I'll never forget this. It really blew my mind. We went up on the top of a hill, and our tour guide said, look down here. That's a Canaanite altar. And it was massive. It was like the size of this room. Huge. Probably, I don't know, five, six feet tall. Just stones. Massive altar. And they would kill these animals and kill children and do all kinds of things on these altars. They were massive. And he's saying, they're just going to be overgrown. This was an altar that had been dug up. It was covered through the years. It had been covered up. And so they had to dig it out archaeologically. And so that's what he's saying. It's going to be covered with thorns and, and thistles. Verse 9, and then let's go to 11. O Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood. The battle, the, the battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. When it is my desire, I will chasten them. People shall be gathered against them when I bind them for their two transgressions. Ephraim is a trained heifer. That's one of my favorite lines in the whole Bible. <laughs> that loves to thresh grain. But I harnessed her fair neck. I will make Ephraim pull a plow. Judah shall plow. Jacob shall break his clods. So let's take that apart. You have sinned from the days of Gibeah. Gibeah has been mentioned in Hosea 9. It, it's this horrific sin that took place in Judges 19. Even though there was a battle, and we've looked at that. We mentioned it before. Even though there was a battle in Gibeah, in Gibeah against the children of iniquity, there was still iniquity in Israel. And, and God wanted this willfully blind Israel to see her sin and to repent of it. Judges 19, horrific sin. It's a comparison. We talked about it last time. You can go back and listen to the podcast, watch it on Facebook or YouTube, but Horrific, and it was it was so bad. Like, can I say this? Israel probably never ever thought they would backslide so far. And brothers and sisters, I mean, we're in a better covenant, but this is just flesh. You and I are capable of the worst kinds of backsliding. Jesus, keep me near the cross. May I never forget. Don't let a root of bitterness distract me and take me away. God, help me to keep my focus on you and keep the main thing, the main thing, 
You died for me. You laid your life down for me. You raised me to walk in newness of life. This whole world is going to burn up with a fervent heat. But I'm going to the other side. I don't want to backslide. I don't want to lose my way. It starts one step at a time. They never thought they would get this far. Go look at that Judges 19. That sin of Gibeah. That iniquity was there. Iniquity is just twisted thinking. I heard one man put it like this. Iniquity is like wicked. It's wicked, which reminds me of wicker, wicker in furniture. Just all twisted. It has the components, but everything's twisted into something different. And, and we can take the truths of God's word and get our thinking twisted. And all of a sudden, we're worse than we would have been had we not known the Lord. When it is my desire, he says, I will chasten them. It's, it, he mentions these, these farm animals, this, this trained heifer. God's like, I will control and guide Israel and Jacob. You can kick all you want. I'm going to get you where you need to be. Verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till He comes and rains righteousness on you. Sow for yourselves righteousness and reap mercy. Israel had sown the seed of sin, so much about sowing and reaping in all of this, and, and they were going to reap judgment from Almighty God. But now, he's saying, if you'll sow righteousness, like even now, if you'll sow righteousness, the next harvest is going to be a harvest of mercy. It's a no-brainer. We all sow into our life, but do we sow seeds of righteousness is the thought. What crop is going to spring up tomorrow from the seeds you planted today or last week or last month or last year? Break up your fallow ground, he says. It's this picture, this, this horticulture, this farming, agriculture. God builds this picture for us of sowing and reaping and plowing. Fallow ground is ground that has not been plowed in over a year. It, it's hardened. It's stubborn. It's resistant to the seed. And, and it doesn't do a lot of good to sow seed on fallow ground. It has to be broken up. My Pawpaw Hill in Waldo, Arkansas. Me and my cousin Randy, we used to go up there for two weeks at a time. And that two weeks was spent, a lot of it, in the garden. Big old giant garden. And part of that, depending on the time of year, we were plowing. I watched my papa plow more than I did the plowing. And he had a little tractor. And, and, but in the barn, in his, we called it a shed. In his shed, he had what he used to, a plow that he used to attach to a mule. And me and Randy would get that thing out and try to mess with it and try to plow, get that spade going in the right way. That's what you do when... When it's time to plant the seed, you've got to plow it up 
or the seed won't take. Mark chapter 4, I mean the whole parable of the sower. And so here you have fallow ground that is, is not receptive to the seed. And so sometimes when the word of God goes forth, it's not effective because the heart is hard. And, and, and here's the deal. The picture is this. The ground doesn't want to be broken up. It, it doesn't. It's comfortable like it is. It doesn't want the blade of the plow to cut through it. But as long as it's like that, it's useless to the Lord. And he's like, you got you to gotta break up that fallow ground for it's time to seek the Lord. That's how you break up the fallow ground. This is a call to seek him and to break up the fallow ground by seeking God and not ourself or our idols. And, and notice the time to do that, the prophet is saying, is now. Adam Clark says it like this. This should be immediately done. Why? Because the season is passing. If you don't get the seed in the ground now, the early rain will move past you and your fields will be unfruitful. And so he's saying, break up that fallow ground, seek the Lord until he comes and rains righteousness on you. So you seek the Lord, you break up the fallow ground until he hears from heaven and answers. That's so good, y'all. Boy, that's so good for us in the New Testament over here, y'all. Because we can just go through the motions, can't we? Just go through the motions day in, day out, hard-hearted, stubborn, rebellious, doing our own thing. But there's a time when you've got to break up that fallow ground. You've got to talk to yourself. Hey, self! It's time to break it up. I got to call on the name of the Lord. I got to get myself in the right place for such a time as this. Till he comes and rains righteousness on you. So here you have these agricultural pictures. And, and you, you can sow for years, but I'm telling you what, all you got to do is repent and stay at it. It doesn't take long for the heavens to open up and the mercy of God to fall. When I was. Uh, you know, out there in the world, living, doing my own thing. And I was so angry and mad at God. I hated church. And I, as Valerie and I swore we'd never go to church. And then we got married and she went to church. And we almost got divorced. You know, it's like horrible. Couldn't believe Nightmare. I married a the church lady. You know, like how did this happen? It's just not who I married. And then we, uh, and then, then I got hungry for God. But I was so angry and arrogant, hard-hearted. I've talked about it. Didn't feel the presence of God for a long, long time, years and years. But when I, when I started breaking up the fallow ground, interestingly, I got, I got alone. I got in a room by myself. And, and I started crying out to God. I tell this story in my book. It was a very powerful story to me, very powerful moment in my life. I started calling out to God, praying to the Lord, had this experience with God. And the Holy Ghost, the Lord spoke to me. If I've ever heard God speak to me, it was at this point. It wasn't audible. It was on the inside. I knew it was the Lord. And the presence of God just flooded me. And what he said, he quoted John 12. He quoted a scripture to me. And it was a, a, a Christological. It was, it was The application originally was to Jesus Christ. 
But there's an application for us all. You take up your cross and follow him. This is what he said to me. And it was very powerful. It was like it thundered in my spirit. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die. It abides alone. Donovan, everything you thought was true, you've got to let it go. You've got to die to it. And let me show you how to live. Boom. Blew up in my spirit. What is that? Breaking up the fallow ground. Seeking the Lord while he may be found. Until he rains righteousness on you. Changed my life forever. I got up from that moment. Forever changed. Touched by the mercy of God. I'll never sing enough mercy songs. I'll never forget I was writing a song one time. And this this, uh, lady I was co-writing with. She's like, oh, there you go again. It's a mercy song. And I'm like, you don't know my story. If you knew my story. You would know why I sing mercy songs. I shouldn't be here. I got friends that never made it back. But here I am because of the grace of God, because of the mercy of God. Hallelujah. Can you give the Lord some praise for his mercy? Verses 13 through 15. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way and the multitude of your mighty men. Therefore, tumult shall... Arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be plundered as Shalman plundered Beth Arbel in the day of battle. A mother dashed in pieces upon her children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great wickedness. At dawn the king of Israel shall be cut off utterly. So it says, basically, you trusted your own way, and this is, this is really, you trusted your own way. Think about that. You trusted your own way. There's a way that seems right to man. The end thereof is death. You trusted your own way. That, that's all sin when we trust our own way instead of God's way. The devil, and I mentioned this in First Monday prayer, the devil didn't tell Eve, I want to be your master. That's not what he said. The shift of commitment is never from Christ to the devil. It's from Christ to self. And the devil's gotcha. You think you're in control, and you're not. Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Told you we'd get to 11. We're going to boogie. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. So he says, I loved him. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. There's so much in this. This is like this, quote, inadvertent, unquote, prophecy. But nothing's inadvertent in that book. It's just this prophecy regarding Jesus. Go back to Exodus. When Moses stood before Pharaoh, he he said, the Lord had instructed him, say this, let Israel, my firstborn, go. Israel was a type of Christ, the nation. Let Israel, my firstborn, my only begotten, 
let Israel go. And so that's why you have Joseph in the book of Matthew being told by the Lord, uh, there's people trying to kill my firstborn, my son. Your son is really my son. And so take Mary and the baby and go to Egypt. So in Exodus, the Lord's like, I'm going to get them out of Egypt. But then with Joseph, I'm going to get him back into Egypt, the son. But then Herod is going to start, you know, killing the baby. So they go to Egypt and then Herod dies and uh, Joseph has another dream. And he, the angel says, take the son and go back because those who seek the child are dead. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Did I tell that story right? So, so you've, got, you've, got, you've got this idea of out of Egypt I've called my son. This is interesting because Joseph was a dreamer, fascinated by this. He had four dreams. Jesus' father, you know, Mary's husband. Joseph was a dreamer. The first dream was don't be afraid to marry this woman, even though she's pregnant. you got to be pretty strong to say, well, I had a dream, and I trust you. Number two, the second dream that he had was there are those that are trying to kill the son. You need to flee to Egypt, Matthew 2. First one was Matthew 1. This is Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Then he had a third dream, Matthew 2, 16 through 18. This is two years later. Go back. Those who want to kill the child are dead. Herod had died. Go back. And then Matthew 2, 22, he had the fourth dream. And it said, don't, don't go to Judea because there's, there's trouble there. I want you to go outside of Judea. So he ends up going to the region of Galilee. And settling in Nazareth. And there's a scripture that said in, in the book of Matthew, he says he would be called a Nazarene. A everything's in there for a reason. And, and so this is fulfilling probably Isaiah 11, 1 or Psalm 22, 6 through 7. He would be a Galilean. He would be a Nazarene, uh, despised, rejected, least likely place. Uh, and yet here comes the Lord of glory. And so I love the fact that Joseph was a dreamer. But going back to the book of Hosea, out of Egypt, I've called him. So this is God remembered his love for Israel. And he remembered that 500 years before Hosea, he had brought them out of Egypt. And then you're going to see, you know, even later, in Hosea, you know, past Hosea's time, when Jesus would come out of Egypt as well. Verses 3 through 4. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. So I taught Ephraim to walk. You know, come on, just one more step. But they did not know that I healed them. The idea is you're like a child. I've done so much for you. You don't even realize. Your kids don't know what you do for them. 
They think that food just appears on the table. They think that diaper just, it's supposed to get changed. Change me. They're 14, 15 years old, and they're like, feed me. They don't understand how all of that works. You think this roof's just over your head accidentally? They didn't even know it was me, is what God's saying. I've done so much for you, you don't even realize it. You don't attribute the blessings to me. You think it's coming from these false gods. Take them by the arms, you know, walking. Come on, come on, you've got this. I remember Lucas starting to walk around here. Like, there he goes. There he goes. You know, woo, there you go. That's the Lord taking Israel by the hand. I drew them with gentle cords and bands of love. When God draws his people, it's with gentle cords of love. It's not manipulation. It's not coercion. God wants to win us over, but, but not with brute force. Adam Clark says regarding the gentle cords, it's a reference to leading strings, one end of which is held by the child, the other by the nurse, by which the little one, feeling more support and gaining confidence, endeavors to walk. God, their heavenly Father, made use of every means and method to teach them to walk in the right and only safe path. When I read that, I thought about when our kids were little, I'm just, we're from that age, that era. We put leashes on our kids, man. Put these little harnesses on their chest and had a leash. Take them to the mall. They're on a leash. We didn't lose them. By the time Alexander got old enough, we quit leashing them. And we lost Alexander a couple times. True story. Caleb and Lizzie, we didn't lose them. You know why? We leashed them. We flat out leashed those kids. That's the idea here. <laughs> Guzik says this, In the ancient world, the empires of Persia and Greece fought bitter wars. There was said to be a great difference between their soldiers. In the Persian army, soldiers were like slaves and driven into battle with whips and threats. While in the Greek army, soldiers were free men and patriots and fought for Sparta and Greece out of love for a country and a sense of duty. The smaller armies of Greece usually beat the larger armies of Persia. And God calls us as an army of free men, grateful patriots in the kingdom of God. Spurgeon, on all of this, says, Understand then, it is true that no man comes to God except he is drawn. No man comes to the Lord except the Spirit drawn. But it is equally true that God draweth no man contrary to the constitution of man. But his methods of drawing are in strict accordance with ordinary mental operations. He finds the human mind what it is, and he acts upon it, not as upon matter, but as upon mind. The compulsions, the constraints, the cords that he uses are cords of a man. The band he employs are bands of love. He finds common ground. He, he, he bridges the gap. He speaks in your language. God sent prophets to Israel that talked in illustrations that the people could understand. He gets down on your level. Whole picture of Christ coming as a man on our level. The humiliation of the Christ. Highly exalted, leaves heaven, comes down as a man. And those who take the yoke from their neck, this is 
a reference to relaxing and loosening the yoke collar of a plowing animal, giving the animal rest and freedom to breathe. I stooped and fed them. Y'all, I will go home tonight and I will stoop and I will feed Hemingway, the dumb cat. Because he will drive me crazy if I don't. I'll go in the house and he'll just stand outside the door going, meow, meow, just like relentless. Go out there, feed, I'll stoop down, humble myself, bow before Hemingway, because that's what cats do, you know. If they jump in your lap, it's not you, they chose you, you know. They chose you. You're like, come here, come here, it doesn't come, you know. Then they choose you. Uh, verses 5 through 7. Stand with me right now. I'm trying now. I don't know if we're going to finish 11. I'm trying. I'm trying, man. I'm rolling. Uh, he shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king because they refuse to repent. The sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, None at all exalt him. So here, again, they just refuse to repent. You know, the, the problem is that. They, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, turn from their wicked ways, it's repentance. They just refuse to repent. Exile is going to come for them. They're bent on backsliding from me. They call on the Most High, but they don't exalt him. It's just lip service. Verses 8 and 9, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I'm God, I'm not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. Just still, with clouds of judgment on the horizon, chastening coming, the Sympathy of God is what's stirred up here. Sympathy. How can I give you up? I do not want you to go through the pain reaping what you've sowed. I, I, I don't want you to hurt like this. Adma and Zeboiim, two cities that were in the plain where Sodom and Gomorrah was. They were destroyed. There were five cities in that plain. Sodom and Gomorrah, these two, and another one. We're caught up in the destruction. It's like, I, I can't bear the thought. And he's like, I'm not going to destroy Ephraim. Their sin deserves it. It should be wiped out. But he's like, I'm going to restore you as a nation. And guess what? 2,000 years later, 1948, the nation was reborn. God is not a man that he should lie. I'm telling you, it may take time. The promise may linger. It may be a long time. It may be a while. But my God is not a man that he should lie. If he promised it, it will come to pass. If he's made you promises, promises for your family, promises for your kids, maybe you've blown it. Listen, repent, turn back to him. He knows how to restore the years. He is not a man that he should lie. He will come through. He will come through. He will come through. Isaiah 66 and 8, and I'm done. 
Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made and give birth in one day? Shall a nation be born at once? As soon as Zion was in labor, as soon as she travailed, as soon as she turned back to the Lord, she gave birth to her children. I'll tell you who can make that happen. God can make that happen. God can make that happen. Hallelujah. Amen. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Can you close your eyes? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that our dependence is on you and not on us. Because we would let ourselves down. But God, you never fail. You never let us down. You're so good. Your, your mercy really is everlasting. Sometimes I feel hopeless. Sometimes I feel like there is no way. But that's when I remind myself and I, I, I talk to myself and I rehearse the words of that covenant. I go back to it and say, Oh, yeah, but if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven. I, 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 will, I will open the heavens. I will pour out the rain. I will heal their land. Father, you're faithful. I go back and I recite that and I find fresh hope once again. Man, I just feel that kind of in the theme right now. As we're closing out, why don't you just thank the Lord for hope? Maybe you need some fresh hope, a fresh dose of hope. Just a fresh.